John here. Good morning, everybody. How are we doing this morning? Good to see you all. Thank you for joining us. My name is Jeff. I get to serve on staff here at the church and excited to be with you this morning. This is somewhat of a unique day on the Christian calendar. If you are new to Christianity and exploring the faith, this is what's commonly known as Palm Sunday. It's the beginning of what we call Holy Week. And I know we mentioned this amazing meditation book we've put together. Also wanted to just remind you, as you think about your week, as we think about Good Friday coming up on Friday and Easter on Sunday, uh, we do have what's called the Stations of the Cross. It's a beautiful exhibit where you can walk through this artwork taking you through uh, the, uh, some of the elements leading up to Jesus' death and resurrection. So I want to invite you to do that. There's sign-ups um, online, trinitysd.org. I want to invite you to the stations. would love to have you join us there. Now, this day is also known as what? The triumphal entry. This is the day that Jesus enters Jerusalem, identifying himself as a coming king. And we're going to have a little bit of fun today. We're also going to do some history because understanding the context and the significance of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey is so critical to understanding his death and resurrection, which would take place just a handful of days after his arrival in that great city. And what history has shown us time and time again, and most of us can think back on this, is that we all Deep down, we desire a king, a hero, someone to come lead us, someone to come rid us of all the evil and the injustice in the world. And we're experiencing that, aren't we, on a worldwide stage right now. We want someone to stand up for us. We've had good kings, we've had bad kings, we've had good heroes and bad heroes. But Hollywood has made a lot of money off this idea of the underdog, the hero rising up to over overthrow the evil empire. And I want to walk through just for fun, just to get us thinking about this idea. Some of my favorite movies, don't judge me on all of them, but of the hero rising up. And I want to provide you with the taglines for these as we begin to think about this idea. So let's pull up the first one. Please don't judge me on this one, okay? Um, I was young when it came out, and it's, I love this movie. So, Robin Hood, for the good of all men and the love of one woman, he fought to uphold justice by breaking the law, right? You have this guy who's coming to overthrow the sheriff of Nottingham. Next one. Okay, this is the greatest tagline, maybe in movie history. The general who became a slave, the slave who became a gladiator, the gladiator who defied an empire. I mean, it does not get better than that. Russell Crowe. The next one, this is for the ladies out there. Elizabeth, this is a good one too. Declared illegitimate, aged three. Tried for treason, aged 21. Crowned queen, aged 25. I would ask all of you, what did you do by the age of 25? <laughs> Probably not this. And the last one, personal favorite of mine. Also, the worst tagline ever, listen to this. What sort of man would lead a revolt against a king? And what sort of country would fight beside such a man? How boring is that? It's a bad one, but it does give us the great line, every man dies, not every man really lives. One of my favorite movie lines of all time. You know, just a fun way to get us thinking about how we all desire a king. We all want 
a hero. Hollywood's shown us this. History's shown us this. And let me tell you another story, a true story, that would have been on the minds and the hearts of everyone in Jerusalem at this moment when Jesus enters. The story about a man named Judas Maccabeus. In 167 BC, there was a Greek king, a Seleucid king called Antiochus Epiphanes IV, probably mispronounced that. Alexander has died. All of his, his kingdom gets cut up into these different Greek kingdoms. And Antiochus is leading this one. And he goes into the temple in Jerusalem and he puts a statue of Zeus in there and he sacrifices a swine on the temple and he outrages the Jewish people. Shortly after that, in a town called Modin, there's a priest named Mattathias who has these four sons, one of them being Judas Maccabeus, and he kills a commander and his sons flee into the mountains and they begin this kind of guerrilla warfare attack on the Greek army. They're hiding in caves and they're coming out and they're attacking and they're retreating and they're attacking and retreating. It's a long, crazy story, but over many years, he leads these rebellions and though he is eventually killed in battle, he does, he does through his efforts, lead to, the, um, to Israel gaining their independence from the Greeks. He is successful in his attempts. And one of these times where he comes into Jerusalem after a big battle, the people bring out palm branches and they wave them in his honor. We'll talk about that in a minute. But this, this desire for independence, this desire to be free from these oppressors who are oppressing us would have been on the minds and the hearts of the people as Jesus comes into Jerusalem. Let's pick it up in 1212. A large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus has, was coming to Jerusalem. Now this passage, the triumphal entry, is one of the few incidents in Jesus' life that is found in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it's, it's an extremely significant moment in Jesus' ministry and gives unique clarity, though not exactly at the time, on who Jesus is and what his mission is in the world. So let me set the stage for what's happening here. At the time that Jesus rode the donkey into Jerusalem, the, sixth, the city would have been electric. You could have felt the tension, the anticipation, the excitement. It was Passover, the largest of the Jewish festivals, the celebration um, of the time when they were slaves in Egypt. And God instructs them to put blood on the doorpost, and he delivers them from Pharaoh. So they're in town celebrating this. At the same time, they've heard about this rabbi. There was a rabbi that raised this man from the dead, this man named Lazarus. And he had been in the tomb for four days. And if you were here two weeks ago, we learned that according to Jew Jewish lore, to be in the tomb for four days meant that you were what? Dead, dead. No hope for coming back. And so this rabbi had raised this man, Lazarus, from the dead. And he was coming into Jerusalem as a potential king. And so the city was ready to explode, ready to, ready to crown him king, ready for him to come in and do what? 
defeat the Romans. But there are also those in Jerusalem who were not as excited about his arrival. Caiaphas, the high priest, and the other Jewish leaders were enraged about all that Jesus had been doing. Enraged that the people were flocking to him. And as a result, they put Jesus and Lazarus at the top of their hit list. In fact, if you look just a couple verses before this, in 12, 9 to 11, they decide to once again to kill Lazarus after, after he had been raised from the dead. There's great irony there. But let's pause and think about this moment, the significance of what's happening as Jesus comes into Jerusalem. The Passover rescues God's people, the Israelites, through the blood of the Lamb. And Jesus is coming into Jerusalem to rescue all his people throughout all of time by the shedding of his blood. We're going to talk about more of this in a minute. So in 12, 13, they take out the palm branches and they went out to meet him crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Hosanna literally means save. Chris talked about this earlier, or to save. So when Jesus is riding in on this donkey, they're most likely yelling, save us. The king has come to save us. And they're waving these palm branches. Kent Hughes, in his commentary on John, writes this, The palm was the symbol on the coin of the second Maccabean revolt. When Judas defeated the Greeks in battle, the people waved palm branches as he entered the city, a victorious leader. The crowd fully expected to see Jesus issue a call to arms and drive out the hated Romans. There was an incredible nationalistic spirit and fervor in the city. And in 14 and 15, Jesus finds a young donkey and he sat on it. Just as it was written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. See, they expect this, this king to come in, but Jesus does something unexpected here. He sits on a donkey, riding in on this donkey, by coming in on the donkey, he is communicating to everyone that he is not arriving as a conquering hero. He is not going to be the next Judas Maccabeus or even the next King David. He is coming not as a conquering hero, but as the Messiah. Again, Hughes writes this, The donkey was a royal beast, but it was an animal of peace. A humble animal. Jesus was a new kind of king. But, not, but no one understood that. If they would, they would have cast him aside, which they eventually did. The crowd wanted a king with a sword. I didn't know this about a donkey. I feel bad for the donkey. I feel like Shrek ruined the donkey, right? I did not think, I mean, it's a royal animal, an animal of peace. And the significance of Jesus coming in not in a war horse, on a war horse, which would have been what King David did, which would have been what Judas Maccabeus did. But he comes in riding this donkey. Carson's going to further clarify this. He says he does not enter Jerusalem on a war horse, which would have whipped the political aspirations of the vast crowds into insurrectionist frenzy. But he chooses to present himself as a king who comes in peace, gently and riding on a donkey. And he quotes this line in 1215 from Zechariah 9, 9 to 11. 
Most of that we read in the call to worship today. But let me read it for us, because it's so important. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a coal, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And as for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Jesus' entry on the donkey sets the tone for not only his entrance into the city, but to give everyone a clue about the kind of king he is. Now, I don't really have three points for us through the sermon, but I do have three points here. So if you're taking notes, I think these are important notes to jot down and go back and reflect on. Three things we learn from this prophecy of Zechariah. Number one, a peaceful king will come and bring to an end to war and fighting. Number two, the arrival of the peaceful king will what? Will bring peace to the nations. In the latter half of Zechariah 9.10, he quotes Psalm 72.8. So we have a quote within a quote here. Right? We're getting deep. Let me jump over to Psalm 72. This is what's known as a messianic psalm. And again, this gives us a picture of how Jesus is fulfilling all of these prophecies as he's coming into Jerusalem. 72.8, may, may he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. But then a couple of verses later in 12 to 14, it says this about the coming Messiah. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the life, the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. Isn't that beautiful? There's an echo, there's echoes of the Sermon on the Mount in this psalm. But beyond that, if we think about who Jesus spends time with, when he's on earth, he spends time with the needy, the poor, the broken, the sick, prostitutes, and tax collectors. He came, he came to redeem their life, and they were precious to him. What an incredible picture of the king who is entering Jerusalem on an animal of peace. And listen, he has come to redeem your life. And you are precious to him. So we have the peaceful king that will end war. The king who will bring peace to the nations. And finally, a king who will bring freedom to the captives. The last part of 9-11 says this. And D.A. Carson puts it this way. With the blood of God's covenant that spells release for prisoners. Themes already precious to John and associated with Passover and with the death of the servant king that lies immediately ahead. So here's where we're at so far. This is amazing. We have the prophecy of the blood of God's covenant that brings release for all prisoners, all while Jesus is entering Jerusalem during Passover, which celebrated the freedom of the Israelites by the lamb's blood on the doorpost, all the while knowing that he has not come to defeat the Romans 
by the sword, but to defeat sin and death by his blood and bring freedom for all who will follow him in any age, at any time. This is an incredible picture of the Old Testament being fulfilled in the new. And the disciples have no idea what's going on. They're completely clueless. Look at 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. What did they remember? Look back on John 2, 18 through 22 really quick. It clues us in on on what this means. It says this, So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, this is important, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them. And they believed the scriptures in the word that Jesus had spoken. As we consider both of these moments in Jesus' life, it's after his death and resurrection that the disciples begin to understand so much of what he had said. The puzzle pieces start coming together. Now you may be thinking, how did they not know? They were with him. They talked to him. They learned from him. They saw the miracles he had done. But what we're seeing here is the evolution of thinking of first century followers of Jesus. We're seeing the beginning of Christianity as we understand it today. And none of it's complete without the resurrection. But you know, they didn't have the whole story. They didn't have the Bible as we have today. They couldn't look back and see what's going on. So that's the disciples. That's how they were feeling. I want to look at another group this morning, the crowd. How was the crowd understanding what was happening? 17 and 18, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. Now, there's actually two crowds in this section, if you pick that up. The first was with Jesus when he called Lazarus out of the tomb. They witnessed the miracle. And look at the verse, end of verse 17. They continue to bear witness. They continue to tell people about what Jesus had done. They were all in on Jesus at this point. Who or what can stop this man if he can raise someone from the dead? Certainly not Rome. The second crowd is the crowd that's heard what he's done. They weren't there when he did it. They're in Jerusalem or they came from the surrounding countryside and they heard that there's this rabbi that raised someone from the dead. They've come out to meet him, to see him. There's tension in this passage that you can't see when you read it, but if Jesus wanted to start a revolt, an insurrection, he could have done so right then and there. Could have led the people, stirred them up to fight against Rome. The people were ready. The hero had arrived. But he chooses not to do that. And it's at this point, as the people were expecting Jesus to be a warrior hero, to liberate them from their oppressors, in the same way David defeated the Philistines and Maccabeus defeated the Greeks, it's somewhat understandable that when he 
refuses the sword and is arrested, that the people, what do they do? They turn on him, right? These people that were ready to crown him king all of a sudden go, no, no, no. We want Barabbas instead. Give us the prisoner Barabbas. You take Jesus. They completely turn on him. The city that welcomed him would soon crucify him. But in their desire for liberation, like so many of us do, they forget the past. Maccabeus comes in and he helps defeat the Greeks. And one of the things he does is he forms an alliance with this growing empire in the region. Do you know who it was? The Romans. Okay, Maccabeus creates an alliance with the Romans to help defeat the Greeks, and they gain their freedom temporarily, right? The Romans help free them, and then the Romans enslave them. And friends, this is what we would call idolatry. When we find liberation and hope in anything other than Jesus, what at first feels like freedom will soon turn to enslavement. It happens every single time. It could be on things like money, sex, power, acceptance, the desire to be loved, to place a person or a thing to a high, the highest level. And not those, now, these things are not inherently bad, but when they are created with our hope in them, when they are seen as an, an act of salvation, that they will bring liberation to me, that's an idolatry when it's anything other than God. The people want freedom, but they forget that the freedom that they desire just will ultimately, time and time again, lead to their enslavement. Last group, we'll close here. We've had the disciples, we've had the crowd. The last group that we see here mentioned in 19 is the religious leaders, the Pharisees. The Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. The NIV says it like this. See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Now, the Gospel of John, which we've been studying since the fall, Whenever God uses the phrase the world, he's not using it specifically as hyperbole. In other words, the Pharisees are not saying, look, the world is going after him, meaning all the Jews in the area are clamoring to Jesus. What they mean is that everyone is going to Jesus. Jews, Gentiles, pilgrims, residents of Jerusalem. Carson writes this, the world commonly refers in the fourth, the world commonly refers in the fourth gospel to people everywhere without racial distinction, but who are lost and in rebellion against God. The world is going after Jesus. What does John 3.16 say? One of the most famous verses in the Bible. All you have to be is a football fan to know this one, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The world's going to him. And the Pharisees know that they cannot change the people's opinions of Jesus. They can't reduce his popularity. They can't stop the people from going to him. There's only one way to deal with a rebel, isn't there? Only one way to eliminate him. 
And the high priests had set this in motion in John 11. They've decided that Jesus must die. And then this rebellion would end. And little did they know what would happen next. Little did they know that his arrival in Jerusalem is the fulfillment of the prophecies that were written about him hundreds and thousands of years prior. Prophecies those leaders knew well. Little did they know that God's plan of redemption, set in motion from the beginning, had arrived in the person of Jesus. Little did they know that he had arrived as a king. He had come to bring freedom to the captives, though not through the shedding of others' blood, but the shedding of his own blood. We know how the story ends. And in a classic movie fashion, I'm going to leave you with a little bit of a cliffhanger. I'm going to invite you to join us on Good Friday. I'm going to invite you to join us here on Easter to find out how through Jesus, this world that is going towards him may be saved. Would you pray with me? Father, you sent your son for this moment, really. And there were, Jesus did so much in his time while here on earth, but he came for this moment to come in as a king, to go, I've come to rescue my people. I want them to be free, and not free temporarily, not free for a moment before another power rises up and enslaves them, but free for eternity, free to be with me, free to be part of my kingdom as I am the king. And in an act of humility, of grace, of love that none of us will ever understand, he does this by going to the cross. He sheds his blood for you and for me. He defeats sin and death. That we who deserve death are given a chance at life with him to be a part of his family, of his kingdom, to be welcomed in as sons and daughters. What an amazing gift. And it is not out of anything we could do. It was set in motion from the beginning that Jesus would walk into Jerusalem on an animal of peace. He would come into a city that embraced him and then turned against him, but he would do so because of his immense love for us. So we are here because of that love. We realize we have, are saved because of that love. And we lift these words of song and praise up to Jesus because of that love. May our minds and hearts reflect on him this week as we go through Holy Week in anticipation of the sorrow of Friday and the joy of Sunday. Thank you, Lord, for who you are and what you've done. We give you all the glory and worship and praise. In your beautiful name, we pray all of this. Amen.